0: Welcome to the Hay Festival podcast, supported by our friends at Bailey Gifford. I'm Peter Florence, and over the coming weeks, we're going to be bringing you some of the world's greatest writers and thinkers, remixing conversations from our festivals around the world over the past 33 years. We're going to hear from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie, from Naomi Klein, Catlin Moran, Judy Dench and Stephen Fry, Yuval Noah Harari, and a host of others. Join us every Thursday on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and wherever else you like to listen to Imagine the World. There are over 80 sessions in the Hay Player Archive featuring our first podcast guest, the lawyer Philippe Sands. For over 15 years at Hay, he's been interviewing lawyers and politicians, Jimmy Carter, Tom Bergenthal, Luis Moreno Acampo and Shirin Ebadi, alongside musicians, writers and activists, Vanessa Redgrave, Pussy Riot's Nadia Tolokno, Jane Birkin, Leila Slimani, and, of course, the great John Le Carre. This session, though, is about Philippe himself and his book East West Street, a family memoir which quests for truths about his grandparents and also a book about the 20th century. It takes at its heart two lawyers from Lemberg, Herschel Lauterpacht and Raphael Lemkin, whose concepts of crimes against humanity and genocide come into sharp definition at the Nuremberg War Tribunal. The book is a masterpiece. It's full of wisdom, insight, forensic detail and examination, and profound humanity. And so is this conversation he had in 2018 with the festival president, Stephen Fry.
1: Can we begin by you explaining how you, how you began to think that this town, with its, this city with its different names, was going to be
2: the, the navel stone of your book, the sure. central... Sure. Yeah. Total accident. Yeah. Um, I get an uh, So I'm an academic, I'm a barrister, I do cases on crimes against humanity and genocide, and I get out of the blue an invitation from this obscure Ukrainian city called Lviv, L-V-I-V. Um, would I come and deliver a lecture on the work I do on crimes against humanity and genocide? And I look at the invitation and I put two and two together and work out that Lviv is also called Lwów when it was Poland and Lemberg when it was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, I immediately say yes because my grandfather was born in Lemberg in 1904. I knew him well. He lived until 1997. uh, But the one thing he would never talk about, and it was a big thing, was what happened before 1945 or Lemberg. So I thought, I'll just go off and yeah. find the street on which my fa- my it grandfather just a place, or-
1: Lemberg. it's on the border of Poland
2: and Ukraine and so Le- so Lviv as you know from the book is this extraordinary city really on the border between east and west it keeps getting invaded by the Russians yeah. the Poles wanted it it's part of the Austro-Hungarian empire there's one remarkable period in November 1918 <laughs> where in the space of 4 weeks it changes hands 4 times in the first week in the first week it's Austro-Hungary in the second week It's the newly independent Central Ukrainian Republic, Western Ukrainian Republic. Mm. In the third week, it's Austro-Hungary again. And in the fourth week, it's Poland. (laughs) And it's constantly being pulled in all directions. It's an extraordinarily beautiful place. The city center has not changed in 100 years. So you can walk the streets, and there are pictures and maps uh, in the book. And it just opens up the imagination. You can imagine being there when these guys were there. Yeah,
1: and, and you were invited by the university to come and speak, is that right? Uh, I mean, o- on the subject of, yeah. of, of international yeah. crimes, yeah. that it's is your speciality. And what did you discover
2: that made you feel, oh, there's something going on here, there's a story? Well, discover is generous. I stumble across... Right. To, uh, literally, I, mean, I can take no credit for having found it. It was totally an accident. Yeah. It was an accident. Yeah. So I spend a bit of the summer researching crimes against humanity and genocide, which I know pretty well, but I've never gone into the sort of personal details. Where, who actually, you know, when an international treaty is adopted, it doesn't just sort of spontaneously come into being. Someone in a room somewhere has put in a comma, put in a word, and I wanted to find out how these terms came about. And what I discover, firstly, astonishingly, is that the man who invents the words crimes against humanity as a legal concept and puts them into international law in 1945 in the Nuremberg trial is called Hersch Lauterpacht, and hey, guess what, he came from Lviv. And even better, he studied at the law school. And even better than that, the people who invited me had no idea that he, came, he was at their law school. So I thought, that's fantastic. And one should say, he was Jewish. He was Jewish, Polish. Yeah. And having found that, I turned to the genocide thing, and I discovered that genocide was invented in... Well, I mean, it's well-known. It was invented in November 1944 as a term of art in law. It didn't exist as a word before it didn't then. Exist. Look, you've got to pause for a moment. You need yeah. to understand. Okay, It seems incredible, and that's why it's so relevant to where we are now. Before the Second World War a state was entirely free to treat its citizens as it wished. So if we were in Poland or Germany or the UK in 1938 and we decided that people on that side of the room would die tomorrow and people on this side of the room would live, international law had nothing to say about that. There was no restriction on what the state could do. So the revolutionary ideas of crimes against humanity, which protects individuals, and of genocide, which protects groups, is that for the first time, international law places limits on what the state can do to its own citizens. So back to genocide, invented by another Polish Jew, Raphael Lemkin, and what do I discover? Hey, he came from Lviv, he studied at the same law school, and they had no idea. So I'm thinking to myself, what is going on here? Crimes Against Humanity and Genocide both originate in not only the same part of the world, not only the same town, but the same law faculty. And that causes me to start writing a book that involves the lives of three people. My grandfather Leon, who was born there, to discover truly what happened to him. Lauterpacht, who becomes a professor in the 40s in Cambridge University. And Lemkin, who becomes a Polish public prosecutor and then a refugee in the United States. And, and all three of them, your grandfather included, actually, really,
1: um, had a kind of spark. Obviously, the two lawyers were very brilliant boys, very brilliant youths, very brilliant students. Um, Lauterpacht went to Vienna and studied there and was clearly spotted as a very, very advanced mind, if you like, and he managed to get... Over to the United Kingdom to the LSE where he studied and who already spoke five languages or something but not English. But not English. He, learns,
2: he well. This is he w- learned
1: it in five weeks. Well, I, he as I claims.
2: Can tell. Yeah. In fact, there's a sort of prob- slight problem here because like, he learned it in five weeks <laughs> in London and claims that he learns it by going to the cinema. <laughs> okay, but if you go and look at the films the, at that time, they're silence. silent.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, my grandfather, who was a Hungarian Jew, always said, you know, a Hungarian Jew is the only man who can follow you into a revolving door and come out first. (laughs) So, um, maybe maybe a Lemberg Jew is the Uh, only one who can learn a language by watching a silent movie. Yeah. (laughs) But so, and, and, you know, it, it means they left behind families in Lemberg. They, yep. they all did. Your grandfather yep. did. Your grandfather was a sharp businessman who who had a, b- a wider horizon than that little
2: town Actually, he was, he, he, had, he was a shopkeeper. He, he distilled yes. spirits. Yes. And um, his story is: he leaves Lemberg in 1914. He's ten years old. And I learn my mother gives me documents that I've never seen before as I prepare to go off to Lviv with her in a. F- hysterical state with my son and with my aunt and she gives me these documents and from this I'm able to discover various things including that he leaves Lemberg in 1914 when the Russians invade he's 10 years old his brother has already died in the First World War killed by the Russians his father dies of a broken heart immediately thereafter he goes to Vienna with his sisters two sisters and his mum and then stays there until 1939 in January when he leaves Jewish the Anschluss, the Nazis have taken over, the Germans have taken over, and he leaves. And I'd always assumed that he left with his wife, my grandmother, Rita, and with my mum, who was one year old at the time. But what I discovered from these documents is they leave separately, we can can Mm. come back to that, and ends up in Paris when the war begins. Lauterpacht is in London, and Lemkin is in Warsaw when the war begins and escapes to uh, North Carolina. The simple point is that as of the start of the war, the three men each have very large families left in and around Lemberg, 70, 80, 90 people.
1: And Lemberg at the beginning of the war, because of uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop pact between Russia and the Nazis, uh, who are briefly allied, as we all remember, of course, is under Soviet control at that point, isn't it? Which is not great, but it isn't a total disaster for those families left behind.
2: Well, what I've come to understand in relation to modern history is it's not great for some people and it's great for other people. This is what, you know, nothing... Nothing. It's like that film, you know, Run, Lola, Run. You look at the same moment from three different perspectives and you see three totally different stories. The Germans occupy Lemberg after September 39. They then withdraw because of the agreement uh, with the Soviets. Then in June '41, the Germans break the pact with the Soviets and they reoccupy, Lviv becomes Lemberg again, and, and they're there the until June 44. Yeah, And uh, it's so mayhem for University well, the Jews, professors are shot. Well, it's mayhem for the Jews and many Poles, all the intellectual in, Poles. In, in particular. Are poets, writers... Polish lawyers are all lined up. And
1: we have to bring in another lawyer now who's a central figure in the story. That's a German lawyer, Hans Frank,
2: if you could tell us about it. Dear Hans. Dear Hans, whoa. So Hans Frank is not just any lawyer. As I'm doing all this research, I begin to want to know what on earth happened in Lemberg in 1941 1942 after the Germans took over. I'm a courtroom litigator, and so paying attention to detail is incredibly important. You know, you often learn when you're doing a case, it is a tiny point of detail that changes the entire case. Um, Something someone said, some piece of paper someone left behind, and so you pay attention to tiny things. We'll come to that comma.
1: We will. Yeah. There's one comma that changed the history of the world. It's astonishing. But we'll
2: come to that. And it's not the only comma, I suspect. (laughs) world. And so what I want to know is, okay, what are the mechanics? You want to kill 150,000 people. How does it actually happen? Hans Frank is at the epicenter of that story. Hans Frank, born around the same time as the three other men, qualifies as a lawyer, goes to fabulous German law schools, personal friend of Richard Strauss, becomes Adolf Hitler's personal lawyer in 1928 and is his personal lawyer for five years until 1933. As recompense, he becomes Minister of Justice in Bavaria. And then in 1939, he is appointed Governor-General of German-occupied Poland. And then in, uh, from July 41, Lemberg is incorporated into his territory. To celebrate the incorporation of Lemberg, uh, on the first anniversary, he makes a trip to the city and actually gives a big lecture in the very room where I will lecture 70 years later, although I didn't know that, the aula of the university, and announces the implementation of the final solution at which he has uh, contributed six months earlier in Berlin at the famous Wannsee uh, conference. And within two weeks, tens of thousands of people are being shipped off uh, and killed, more than 150,000 people uh, in the space of... Uh, a couple of months. And he becomes a fourth character in the book because he is the connector to the entire to the extermination of the entire families of Lauterpacht, Lemkin and my grandfather Leon, but none of them know that. They don't
1: know it. That's the, and it's all the way later to the Nuremberg trials when Frank is on trial, one of the major Nazi figures on trial. It is the laws of Lauterpacht and Lemkin that are applied to
2: him and to Göring and to the I mean, the you Albers. couldn't it's, invent it, it. It's absolutely Lauterpacht astonishing. Lauterpacht carries on with his life. He gets hired by the British... Mm. Um, actually, I need to be ter- He lives in Cricklewood. He lives in, on Warm Lane in Cricklewood. <laughs> I had to be very careful when I say I did an event um, uh, earlier this week um, at the Charleston Festival and talked about the man he worked with, Hartley Shawcross. Yes. <laughs> former Attorney General. Many of you will know about Hartley mm. Shawcross. And then at the book signing afterwards, the first person in the queue says to me, and a lady, a lovely lady says to me, I, I, I enjoyed your talk. I found it interesting and surprising. Um, and so I've decided to buy your book. And I said, oh, what was... Um, What was interesting about it? And she said, well, actually, I'm I'm Hartley Shawcross's daughter. (laughs) And then she says... It's Willie Shawcross, the writer, of course. Yes. And then she says, you're not very complimentary about my father, are you? (laughs) And I say... Actually, I don't express my own views. I just report on the views of others. <laughs> and, <laughs> he, was, he and was she bought British, a
1: book. He was the British prosecutor. So he, was the, he was the British prosecutor. He was the British prosecutor. or something. I, I oh. met him. And you met him. Yeah, he was going to cross. He was going to. He was going to change political parties. So for a short time, his nickname was Sir Shortly Floor Cross, which I thought was nice.
2: Yes. <laughs> so he hires. He hires. Lauterpacht, um to join the British prosecution team, and Lauterpacht gets in all the stuff about crimes against humanity and then finds himself prosecuting Hans Frank for crimes against humanity, the murder of uh, millions of individuals, but he doesn't know that those individuals include his own family. In parallel, Raphael Lemkin is hired by the American prosecutor, Robert Jackson, to prosecute Frank for the crime of genocide, and he doesn't know that yeah. his whole family has gone and that Frank is responsible. Because so the different powers
1: use different words and that's the point that we will come to about whether genocide or crimes against humanity is the right charge to make. And the British didn't accept
2: genocide or the French well, well, and Soviets well, the, didn't. The, the, British, the British and the Americans didn't like genocide. The Americans, because of African-Americans and yeah. American Indians. They reserved the right,
1: in other words, to pick on groups. Yeah. They didn't well, like a law that made it illegal. To pick on
2: groups. Robert Is that the ja- point? Throughout the trial, Robert Jackson never mentions the word genocide, yeah. and the U.S. prosecutors. There are four teams of prosecutors working in parallel. The U.S. never argue for prosecution uh, conviction for genocide because of the problem of African Americans and American Indians. The Brits start off the trial mm. against the concept of genocide because they worry it will be used in relation to the colonies, yeah. and. I have to give credit to David Maxwell Fife, the hanging... The predecessor of Hartley Shawcross. Uh, yeah, who's also involved in the trial. He introduces for the British, whilst Shawcross is back in London, introduces genocide into the trial for the British, and it takes off.
1: Yes. And... We're coming to these amazing points. I just wanted to just to fill in, because one of the things you do so brilliantly is just a few scenes which are almost cinematic in their power. Uh, one is a diary entry of Hans Frank and his family visiting the ghettos and the description of how splendid they are. It's like an almost unbelievable scene of the wives and families of... Um, of Hans Frank, who's basically the king of Poland and Galicia, which is where Lemberg is, showing their guests around to, to have a look at the walls of the ghettos and saying how lucky the Jews are that this one's got nice Baroque kind of—it's it's nice. It's got little designs on it, and and then they see, oh look, someone's shooting
2: the rats. Can you just well, tell us some of those I, things? I, I, I don't know if you've seen the film that comes with the book, *My Nazi Legacy*. Yes, we'll talk so, about that as well. The two sons, so, of course. Yeah. So. Uh, I get, in doing my research, I'm, I'm, I think I'm quite thorough, and I read everything I can about Hans Frank, and I come across a book written by his son, one of his children, Nicholas, which is a vicious but wonderful account of a son's hatred of his father beyond anything I've ever read. And I get to be very close to Nicholas. We've become actually very good friends. And one day he gives me his father's home movies, which includes video footage, which some of you will have seen if you've seen My Nazi Legacy, uh, uh, the color footage, very rare color footage of inside the ghetto, and I say to Nick, "They, you, you went to the ghetto," uh, and and he explains to me uh, that they did in fact go to the ghetto. Now, jump to since we're at the Hay Festival of Literature and, and Writing, an extraordinary Italian journalist called Curzio Malaparte, who uh, is retained by uh, Corriere della Sera the leading Italian newspaper, in 1942, to go and interview Hans Frank in Krakow. And he files, I dig up from the Sierra archives, the filings. And then in 1944, he publishes a book, which, if you're interested in this, is worth reading, called *Caput*, which is an extraordinary book. It's available in English. Um, it's never been out of print since it, since it came out. And in the book, Malaparte describes going to the ghetto, the Warsaw ghetto, with Hans Frank, and Hans Frank taking pot shots at Jews. So I say to Nick, did it happen? And he said, huh. This is a difficult family story. I remember, he says, in the 1950s, when the book came out in German, my mother, Brigitte, very upset. Nazi, right to the end. Brigitte being very upset with this book because it said, that um, her beloved Hans had gone to the ghetto and taken pot shots at Jews and other people in the ghetto, and my dear Hans never shot anybody. At which point, brother Norman pipes up and says, actually, not quite true. I was there, and I think it may have happened. So you can imagine, I mean, pause for a moment and imagine family life around the breakfast table. when you're recollecting the great Polish days of occupation and you're trying to remember whether a novel writer's account of going with the father, the patriarch of the family to take pot shots is or is not true. It's it's real everyday life. And
1: they called them rats because they came up
2: from uh, holes
1: from uh, little tunnels they dug under the walls of the ghetto. Kids, it was a 10-year-old boy, one of them was just trying to shoot them as they came up. It's almost unbelievable. And the story of Professor Alehand was one that I'll oh, never forget. Can you tell that? Because oh, it's so... It's, again, it's yeah. like... It's,
2: it's, it's, it, it's, as always, it's the tiny points of detail that yeah. stay with you. I'm really interested. They, they, I mean, they stay with you and with really? many other readers I know. So Alehand is a professor of procedural law at the University of Lviv, a very famous Polish uh, professor. He's a teacher of both Lauterpacht and Lemkins, uh, and he also happens to be Jewish. And so the Germans arrive, he's arrested, and he's banged up in the Yanovska concentration camp right in the center of town. Whilst there, he observes, in the presence of others who then report what they see, a German soldier beating up a fellow uh, inmate. Alehand goes up to the uh, German soldier and says to him simply in German, have you no soul? Consequence of that is the German take, soldier takes out his gun and shoots him in the head. Yeah. And th- 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 that struck must have struck yeah, with you for the same did. reason that it struck with me. Yeah. The idea of a person who's a university academic, as I am, uttering four or five words and paying for his life for asking a question. Hast du kein Zehe? Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah.
1: It's, and it's such a good question. And what did that soldier think? No, I haven't, and damn you for knowing it, or... Of course, I have. How dare you assume I have no What goes through the mind of someone? I just—it's—it's it's the very question we ask about well, these deeply we, atrocious.
2: We don't acts. It's the we question can't. you ask yourself. I ask myself. Yeah. Anyone who's been through trauma, whether it is in the Yazidi context or the Kosovo context or the Afghan context mm. or the Cambodian, Yugoslav, Rwanda—the horrible list goes on—it's the same. I meet people in the work that I do who ask themselves the same questions: How can this be? Done. We had a conversation yesterday with Jan Kisselhahn, some of you will have been at that, he has spent time interviewing ISIS perpetrators, people who behead, people who organise suicide bombings, and he asks them the question, yeah. how can you do this? And the common theme that he has learned and that I've learned in my work, psychologist and lawyer coming together, the common theme is always the people we're doing this to are not human, so it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah, That's always the way always. it works. And that always begins by distinguishing the other. And yeah. once you've distinguished the other, the foreigner, the different person...
1: In Rwanda, it was the radio talking about cockroaches. Yeah. They are cockroaches, yeah. they're cockroaches. Yeah. And you repeat it, and of course, throughout the 1930s, thanks to Julius Streicher and, and others, uh, the newspapers and the cartoons of Jews as vermin, as, as non-human is just constantly put into people's minds, so that you can get to the point where the commandant of Auschwitz at the hearse uh, yeah. um, talks about, the, the, quite cheerfully almost, but actually just saying, well, we were indifferent. You know, he was asked, you supervised how many deaths? And he calculated two million or three million that he was responsible for. And they said, well, how, how, how can you... That was, in... that was what we did. Yeah.
2: But, Both, the, but the, know, resonance, the resonance with today, since you mentioned Auschwitz, we did a performance um, uh, three weeks ago at the Royal Festival Hall, a reading of the entirety of Primo Levi's If This Is A Man. A thousand poor people sat through eight hours of 18 of us reading all this um, stuff out. And it, I went back over Levi's introductions, and in the British introduction, he explains that what begins with the distinction between us and them, the focus on the other inevitably ends, as he puts it, with the lager, the concentration camp. And I think that's what makes... uh, The book seems to have resonated much more widely, certainly, than I expected. And I think part of the reason is, is, as you said, we are back in that moment again now of focusing on the other. We have vans driving around the country under Theresa May's Home Secretaryship, Calling for immigrants to be identified so they can be thrown out. I mean, it's not Nazi Germany, but there's a concern that this is how these things begin.
0: Thank you for listening. There are more than 7,000 events from our festivals around the world, which you can hear in full in audio and some on video on HeyPlayer at HeyFestival.org.